Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. And today, I'm joined by someone who really doesn't even need an introduction. Uh, to put it shortly, uh, I have a lot of ground to cover in terms of being the best Mark to cover the Pacers. Mark Monteith, Indiana sports writing legend, is joining us today. Uh, Mark, thanks for coming on. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Good to be with you, Mark. Yeah, I'm excited. I, uh, I'm, I'm really pumped to just kind of pick your brain today. You know, we have a, we have a lot going on in terms of uh, everything going on outside our doors. Uh, obviously, coronavirus has been wild. Um, there's obviously the social injustice and uh, kind of civil unrest going on in the world right now as well. And it's just kind of culminating for the first uh, real big newsworthy moment that I can think of that I, that's going on in my life. Because I, I know like my, uh, my, my parents talk about um, you know, where they were when 9-11 happened. And my grandparents talk about where they were when, uh, when you know, like the Kent State shootings happened. Um, and for me, you know, it's, it's coronavirus and it's, it's, it's pretty wild to, to look back and think about, I remember I was out to dinner and I got a notification on my phone that the OKC and, and jazz game got canceled because I'd, I'd been following the, the updates on, on Twitter and how everything was unfolding with that. And, you know, I'm sure you, you know, the same feel a little bit when news is going on on your phone and you're, it, it involves the, the thing you're covering a little bit. It's pretty hard to not be attached to it, even with your, when you're with family. And uh, so, yeah, that's just for me, that's been, been wild. How, how have you been kind of doing with, uh, with everything? Yeah, this is a historic moment, no question about it. You know, for the league to be shut down like this for so long, you know, when it's not a lockout or strike of some kind. And um, it's been, um, I mean, I can't complain. I'm not suffering. Uh, you know, I'm, I have a nice place to live and plenty of food, so I'm not going to complain. But certainly – it's kind of a scary time. And I, I feel so bad for the students in high school and college who may have school either delayed or canceled. And the athletes who, you know, were looking forward to their senior season of football or basketball, whatever, tennis, and, and may not have that. Uh, it certainly goes into the colleges as well. You know, what, what are you going to do if you don't have a college football season this year, which I still think is a possibility? Um, what do you do with those seniors? You bring them back again, but then you got more freshmen coming in next year. Uh, it's going to have a huge log jam of players. Uh, I don't know how you handle all that. So this is a really, in many ways, a difficult time. And it's um, hopefully we learn something from it and something good comes out of it. But I think we got a long way to go to get out of this. Oh, definitely. Um, I, I, I think definitely in terms of the, just looking at the NBA, uh, getting out of the bubble, I'm still a little bit skeptical on how, how everything's going to unfold. So far, I've, I've been kind of pleasantly surprised with um, how well things have worked out. Uh, I think that, you know, just in regards to, you know, general thought of, of what might happen uh, and my own personal thoughts on what might happen, I, I've been pretty impressed with how well they've pulled off the bubble so far. I think the league is doing whatever it can. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of funny because I, I, you know, today, obviously we don't want to bog down everybody talking about coronavirus in the bubble. And we'll get to that uh, later on, you know, talking about the current teams. But um, since you've been covering the Pacers longer than I've been around, I was born in 1997. I believe you've been covering the Pacers since a little bit before then. So I wanted to ask you, you know, just kind of go back and forth on uh, some of the, the, the great moments in team history or, you know, great for more infamous, you know, because uh, there are definitely some, some moments that go a little bit of the other way as well. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is uh, when, when the brawl happened 
you know, we have to talk about that because the Palace of Auburn Hills just got demolished this week. So, you know, I figured it's got to be a great way to lead off. Um, obviously, you know, I, I was uh, pretty unaware of basketball and, and the Pacers and by the time the 0405 season happens. Um, but, you know, when you're there and you're, you're in Indiana and you're covering the team and you're, you're actively involved with, with sports media at the time, um, you know, just talk a little bit about like what that was like heading into the season prior you know, like what is the, what are the um, expectations and goals? Cause I have, you know, a slight idea of that, um, but obviously I wasn't there in the time, but in uh, and, and the fallout as well, I'd love to hear about. Yeah. Going into that season, there were huge expectations for the Pacers. You know, they had a team capable of winning a championship, no question. And uh, going into that game in Detroit, it was, you know, kind of a rematch. They had been, playing against each other in the playoffs the year before. And it was kind of regarded as a statement game. I remember writing in the Indianapolis Star that, uh, you know, if this is a statement game, these teams haven't even cleared their throats yet because uh, Reggie Miller was injured. Anthony Johnson was injured. Uh, the Pistons had been without some guys. Ben Wallace had been away from the team because his brother had died. The teams weren't together yet, but – they were clearly the two best teams in the Eastern Conference, and it seemed like they were on a collision course uh, to play one another again in the playoffs. So it was a big game, about as big a game as one that early in the season could be. Um, and, you know, the Pacers played really well. They took it to Detroit that night up at the Palace uh, throughout the game, kind of in control from the very beginning. I remember sitting courtside and thinking, you know, man, this team is for real. You know, these guys are really good, you know, considering Reggie Miller's in street clothes. And you got, you know, Jamal Tinsley and um, uh, Steven Jackson and Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal and Jeff Foster and all these other guys. And uh, the Pacers were really good, and they were a team that really had legitimate hopes of contending for a championship. And the brawl itself was so fluky. I mean, so many things had to happen for it to come off the way it did, beginning with Ron Artest's hard foul on Ben Wallace. It was unnecessary. The game was over. You know, you don't need to do that. On the other hand, Wallace overreacted, you know, because you see hard fouls in the NBA all the time, and Wallace overreacted. The referees failed to contain it. I've always said if Joey Crawford or some other veteran refs were working that game, it wouldn't have happened because they would have controlled it. You know, kick our test and Ben Wallace out of the game. The game's over. 45.9 seconds left. I'll never forget. 45.9 was on the clock when this thing happened. And get them both off the floor. Game's over. Um, but they just let it fester. And then our test screwed up by laying down on the scorer's table like he did in front of the bench. Made a big show. He had been taught through his uh, um, work with counselors or whatever to whenever there's a brewing conflict – remove yourself from the scene there. Just get out of the way. Well, he did that, but he made a big show of it. You know, he's laying down on the scores table. He's picking up the phone, pretending like he's going to talk to somebody. Um, I knew, I just knew, I was like 15 feet from our test. I knew some fan was going to do something. Uh, either run over there and try to hit him or throw something at him. And sure enough, somebody threw something at him and Ron jumps up, goes after the wrong fan, and it goes from there. So it was just you know, a, a horrible set of circumstances that caused it to happen. Beyond that, I think Commissioner Stern overreacted, and I think he would admit to 
that if he were alive today, he did basically admit it to me in a conversation once that he was so concerned about the league image that he probably overreacted by suspending our test for the rest of the year and Jermaine O'Neal and Steven Jackson for the number of games he did. There were other times in league history when a player had gone after a fan, uh, either, you know, a heckler or somebody like that. And the penalty was nothing like that. And keep in mind, I try to remind people the legal system, the professionals of justice, the court system, but most of the blame for that and the biggest penalties for that on the guy who threw the cup of beverage that landed on our test. And, uh, but Stern didn't see it that way. And uh, I think he, he almost let our test play in the playoffs. He told me that. Uh, then he decided not to. But it was just a huge conglomeration of bad decisions and mistakes and coincidences that made that happen. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's I can't even imagine sitting courtside for that because I've watched it on YouTube so many times, and that's the only perspective I've had of it. Because I remember uh, I wasn't even into basketball yet; I was probably ten or eleven years old, and um, my dad uh, showed me a video of it one day. We were just watching random sports videos, and he's like, "Oh, you have to see this. You have to see this." I'm like, "Well, what is it?" He's like, "What's well, the malice at the palace?" I'm like, "What's that?" And uh, yeah, <laughs> it starts off with the hard foul and goes from there, man. I uh, so. That's, that's crazy because I, you know, I knew just in talking to former Pacers media people and um, some of my friends who were, you know, f- fathers of friends or just, you know, some of my older friends about uh, what the Pacers were like at that time. Cause obviously, you know, it's a, it's a new era coming off of um, the team that goes to the 2000 finals. It's very different roster, um, different head coach, you know, and just hearing about the expectations is, is, is wild to think about. And, uh, the fallout is really that I'd, I'd love to hear about that too, because I think you, you go from a team that, you know, just by my margins, obviously I think a lot of people point to the 98 team uh, that lost in the Eastern conference finals, but um, just in terms of pure talent, I think that Oh, four Oh five teams got to be just about the most talented team. The Pacers have ever had. Yeah, I, I do agree. You know, I kind of put something out on social media once, which was the better team, the 98 Pacer team that took the bulls the seven games or the 2000, team that reached the NBA Finals, and I do agree that the this brawl team, so to speak, had the most talent, but it was less mature and really hadn't proven itself yet. It hadn't proven it could keep itself together long enough, you know, to make continuous runs in the Conference Finals. You know, the Pacers were in the Conference Finals, what, uh, seven times in the nine, five times in the seven-year period, I think it was. You know, they were there in 98, 99, and 2000. So this 2004 or five Pacer team we're talking about, you know, hadn't made the continuous runs, but it certainly had the raw talent uh, to really do something. I remember Reggie Miller making that statement once in the locker room in casual conversation at one time that that team was the most talented he had ever played on. He didn't say the best team, but the most talented team. So you just needed maturity, uh, needed to stay together a while. And of course that never happened, but, um, you could certainly argue. I mean, Jermaine O'Neal, six-time All-Star, third in the MVP voting one year. Ron Artest is an All-Star, Defensive Player of the Year. Reggie Miller's a Hall of Famer. You know, you can go right down the list of guys who were All-Stars or All-Star caliber players uh, are just really good. It was a really athletic team, um, and it had a chance. It really had a chance, and we'll never know what could have happened. And I would contend, though, that you know, the brawl, people say, well, the brawl ruined the Pacers. Um, the brawl, you know, that team was put back together. 
the following year, really. Reggie Miller retired, but that team was put back together. It was really the off-court incidents that followed uh, that caused that team to break up. You know, they kind of demand that Steven Jackson and guys get traded away. Uh, so to me, that's kind of what broke it up were the off-court incidents and the way people responded to them. But the brawl itself, you know, the Pacers kind of were overcoming that. And people also forget that initially the Pacer fan base sided with the team. You know, they thought the league was really screwing the Pacers um, and overreacted, which I still believe to this day. Uh, but when these off-court things started happening, the fan base turned against the team, and that's when the front office was kind of forced to start making trades. Yeah, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And uh, it's it's interesting to look at, too, because when, when that tail end happens, obviously Jermaine is one of the few guys not traded, um, but then his body starts to break down a little bit. Well, not a little bit, like completely, and it, it totally hampers his game. And it's interesting because I wrote, I, I, you know, one of my favorite things, I love basketball history. You know, I, 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 my, I think my favorite era of basketball is early 2000s and the 90s. So I never got to watch it, but I always go back. And I, I love watching games. I love watching old series and reading about the old players. And um, I, I think Jermaine is just one of the, like, like, how do you think you should be remembered by Pacers fans? Because I think he's uh, just in, in, in talking to the, like the current generation of people, like people who I uh, came up with and, um, who, who associate with on, on social media or anywhere, I think people don't realize how good Jermaine was. Like his, maybe his, uh, he wasn't the most efficient player on the face of the planet, but partially that was the era. And also, I mean, uh, for, for part of the time, there just wasn't anybody else who was taking the shots besides him. I mean, I, in the, uh, the year when he finished third in MVP voting, I remember I looked up his usage percentage that year, and it was 36%, which led the league by far. And uh, I can't even imagine somebody with 36% uh, usage percentage in the paint. Like, that's crazy to me. Yeah, he, um, he probably is underappreciated. He got caught up in the brawl and the brawl's aftermath. And uh, for that reason, probably it's not remembered uh, as fondly as he could be. Again, a six-time All-Star. He played in five All-Star games. He was hurt the last time he was selected. Uh, and that's part of the issue with Jermaine. He had a lot of injuries, and I think a lot of fans got tired of him being injured, and it seemed like there were a lot of nickel-dime injuries that made people think that he could play if he really wanted to. People questioned his toughness, that kind of thing. But as far as talent, and you're talking about a 6'11 guy who is ambidextrous. He could score with either hand around the basket. He was an outstanding shot blocker you know, in the category of uh, Roy Hibbert at his peak and Miles Turner today, you know, probably the really all things considered the best shot blocker the Pacers have had. Not really a perimeter scoring threat, but he came up in an era where, where guys his size were not asked or expected to be that. Um, but still a really good all-around player, could run the floor. And a good guy, not the most mature guy. You know, when people did question his toughness, you know, this is a guy who grew up without ever meeting his dad. His mom and older brother kind of spoiled him because they saw his talent and always kind of catered to him uh, so he could just play basketball and do nothing else. Um, you know, I remember one game specifically where there, there always seemed to be drama whether or not Jermaine was going to play. He had these nagging injuries, and he never seemed to know for sure. He was always questionable. And there was one game where we were told beforehand that he wasn't going to play. Um, and then he went out and played, and he, he played really well. And after the game, I asked him, what happened? We were told you weren't going to play, uh, and you played. And he said, well, I, you know, when I came back to my locker after being with the trainers, 
Reggie asked me if I was going to play, and I said no. And the look he gave me convinced me that I should play. <laughs> and so he went out and played, and that kind of tells you that he could have been a little tougher, you know, that he could have played hurt more often than he did. But, again, he was a young guy at that time. He's probably 22 years old or something like that, 23 at the time. So you got to give him a bit of a pass. And Jermaine was always a, a really good guy. He was great with the media. I presented him a trophy once for the Magic Johnson Award, which goes to an elite player in the NBA who is uh, kind of above and beyond the call of duty and cooperating with the media. Jermaine was always a great go-to guy in the locker room. So my overall impression of him is very positive. Could have been tougher. Um, you know, could have been a little more mature, but he reflected his upbringing like we all do. You look back at the entirety of his career, he was very good. Um, you know, he, he probably deserves to be remembered a little better. Although I have a hard time, you know, judging how somebody should be dis uh, remembered or uh, rated. You know, people talk about underrated, overrated. You know, that's just a matter of opinion. But Jermaine certainly was a great talent. It's unfortunate it ended the way he, it did for him. He wound up getting traded to Toronto as part of a deal that brought Roy Hibbert, which really was a good trade for the Pacers. Um, so, it's, you know, Jermaine's an interesting case study. You know, he was back here. Gosh, last winter, I guess, when they had that three-on-three -three type of game going, you know, and, and you know, wouldn't you know it, he's supposed to play in it, but he was injured, you know. <laughs> so he's <laughs> always had that ongoing issue, and he wound up being a journeyman, played for a bunch of teams. I'm not even sure I can name you. He went from the Pacers to Toronto to Miami to Boston. Um, he was at Golden State at the very end. He might have passed through Phoenix. Yeah, he played in Phoenix for a year or two. Yeah, so I think those are – he played for, what, seven teams or something like that. And and you wouldn't expect a guy as talented as he is to have gone through that process, but that happens sometimes. So I feel bad the way it ended, and he couldn't have stayed healthier. Uh, but he did have a great career, and he played a long time. He played a long time in the NBA, uh, just like Ron Artest and Al Harrington. And when somebody can survive, you know, 15 years or whatever in the league, you got to tip your hat. Yeah, that's an accomplishment in, its, in itself, uh, undoubtedly. I can't even imagine putting that amount of stress on my body. I remember when, uh, yeah. gosh, I was, uh, I was working on a pro boxing career, and that only lasted probably two years. And the, the damages from that, I still feel pretty often. So <laughs> I, I can't imagine doing that for 15 years, man. That's uh, it's crazy to me. And, you know, it's funny, too, because I, I liked what you said about overrated and underrated. I, I totally agree with that. I um, maybe I spend too much time on Twitter, but the amount of times that I see somebody say, Oh, so-and-so is underrated. So-and-so is overrated. I'm like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see yeah. it that way. I think it's more of just trying to remember guys for, for who they were instead of, you know, trying to build somebody else's case up by putting else, somebody else down. You know, I think so much has to do with fit and, and the organization and the environment that, that a guy comes up in. Um, and I mean, I mean, we see that, you know, TJ Warren coming over from Phoenix, like, I wrote about his, uh, his development on, on the defensive end a couple of weeks ago and talked to some of his past coaches there. And, you know, it's, they, they, they talked about how it's just a total mentality shift. You know, it's, it's having a different environment makes a huge difference. And so I really like that you brought that up. And so, you know, kind of transitioning to a, a different phase. Um, I, I wonder, cause this is one I definitely don't know that much about. Um, what was kind of the first Reggie's first playoff series? What was that like? to cover and be around and kind of experience when it was him and Chuck person against the Celtics in that first round series. Cause I know, you know, I've gone back and watched in the games and it was 
a really good series. You have the, the classic, classic jerseys. Um, and it's just a fun, fun time to watch. Obviously, you know, not ready to beat a team like the, the Celtics at that time, but still a really enjoyable time. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was kind of the Reggie's first meaningful playoff series, the one against the Celtics that was best of five and went five games. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, Chuck Person was kind of the Pacers guy. Um, and Detlef Shrimp was a key player, and Rick Smith was on that team. So it was a pretty well-balanced team. And Reggie was just kind of one of the guys. He played well, but he wasn't trying to be the man. They weren't running the offense toward him, that kind of thing. Chuck Person was the guy who was, you know, looking to score the most and really in that game five against Boston that year, you know, took bad shots. He was trying too hard to, to be the hero and really shot the patients out of the game. And that's something I've always given Reggie Miller credit for. He didn't take bad shots. He didn't force things. He always played uh, within the team concept. And he didn't mind not being the guy. You know, he wasn't such a selfish, ego-driven player that he had to be the man. Uh, he was willing to step up and be the guy at crunch time, but he didn't care if he was a leading scorer. He was always willing to defer to a guy like Chuck Person or anyone else. You know, Reggie grew up with two younger brothers, two, two older brothers, and he was kind of most comfortable around older guys, you know, just being the cute little kid, so to speak. And so he never minded a teammate uh, scoring more points or getting more attention or anything like that. But he was such a great clutch player that he wound up getting that attention. And he was perfectly willing and able to step up at crunch time and, and be the guy to lead a team to a victory. He had so many great moments in the playoffs. It's really it's taken all this time, I think, for people to understand and appreciate how many great moments he had in the postseason. It wasn't just eight points in eight point nine seconds or 25 point fourth quarter. I mean, he had so many incredible playoff games and moments. Um, but to his credit, again, he didn't demand that. You know, in the 99-2000 season when Jalen Rose became the team's leading scorer, Reggie was fine with that. and kind of, In fact, he kind of encouraged that. He was trying to defer to Jalen and try to help him become a better player, that type of thing. And Reggie knew he was getting older and didn't want the burden of having to carry a team at the age of 35, 36 years old. So uh, I've always given him a lot of credit for his attitude. I think that's something uh, to tie it into today that Victor Oladipo is going through. You've got to learn how to be uh, famous and learn how to be a team's best player and everything that entails. And it means playing hurt. It means deferring to other players when they're having a big game. It means keeping your ego in check, but also being willing to step up and be the guy when it's called on. Uh, so I, I really give Reggie a lot of credit for that, for a guy who was not a great athlete by NBA standards, you know, skinny guy who didn't dunk on people, really couldn't take people off the dribble. Um, you know, I give him a lot of credit for maxing out his career. And, you know, going back to that Boston series again, he was perfectly fine in that role. And I think he would have continued to be fine uh, in a role where maybe Chuck Person or somebody else was the leading scorer as long as the team was winning, you know, if they were getting knocked out of the first round of the playoffs every year, he would have grown frustrated with that. He probably would have asked for a trade at some point, but that wasn't the case once he became the guy uh, and the Pacers built the right kind of team around him. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's really interesting to hear about Reggie. Uh, Cause uh, you know, he's, 
I mean, he's part of the media now, so you don't necessarily hear about his story as much. Um, obviously, I've seen the uh, winning time and heard, you know, learn about him and, and Cheryl, and uh, those stories are always great to, to listen to. And um, I think it's it's really interesting looking at Reggie's career in general. You know, do you think that not winning the title kind of mars his career a little bit? A little bit, and he would say so. You know, he I used to hear him say when somebody would – offer him praise. He'd say, how many titles have I won? You know, that kind of thing. He kind of held that on himself, against himself. Um, but it's not his fault that the Pacers never won a title. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was the reason they got as far as they did most times. So I don't think that should be held against him. I think that's a mistake when people compare players. And that's another thing I don't like is when people try, who is better, this guy or that guy? You know, I've never gotten into those arguments, but people talk about you know, or Bill Russell won, what, 11 rings or whatever. Well, there are other players you could put on that team in his place, and they still would have won as many championships. You know, so much of it hinges on the talent around you. And we pretty much know that uh, for a team to win an NBA championship, you got to have at least two Hall of Fame players, you know, Jordan and Pippen or whoever, you know, two, maybe three future Hall of Famers. And the Pacers really never had that. I mean, Chris Mullen is a Hall of Famer, but he was way past his prime when he came to the Pacers. So, you know, Reggie's supporting cast is really good, but not quite good enough. I certainly don't put that as a black mark on his career that he didn't win a title because I, I don't think it was his fault they didn't win a title. He was the guy who stepped up most playoffs, and they just got beat by slightly better teams almost every time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you run into two of the greatest dynasties of all time. I mean, obviously playing – Jordan and Pippen and then running into Shaq and Kobe. And I actually just yeah. did a podcast uh, with a, with a Lakers beat writer about the, the 2000 finals last week. So I was going through and watching all those games again. And uh, I mean, Dale Davis was a heck of a defender, but asking him to guard Shaq was just, it's, it's, I'm sorry, man. It's, it's over. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I agree. I just think it, it's really funny too. Cause I, uh, you know, looking at that, then the offense that, the team used to run. Uh, I think it was prior to Larry Brown a little bit. Um, but when, gosh, who was the coach? Right? It was, uh, Bob Hill. yes, Bob Hill. Um, when Detlef Schrempf was there, uh, the, the offense in the two man game that, that Reggie and, and Detlef had was amazing because people go at, go back and talk about those Pacers teams, not having great offenses or whatever they saying it was unesthetic, but it's, it's, it's really fun to go back and watch because, I'm still learning X's and O's a little bit. You know, I, I didn't play at a super high level in basketball, but watching those offenses is, is amazing. It's so intricate, the way that they use so much to get as much as they can out of the little shot creation they have is always interesting to watch. And I love watching that for Reggie. I mean, you watch the later 90s games, you know, against the Knicks, and he'll run through three screens to just to get to, you know, an open 18-footer, semi-open 18-footer. Um, it's just totally different eras. I, I, and watching Reggie is just always a pleasure. I mean, his, his stroke is, is unreal. You know, I, I can't even imagine doing that. I still have like a – I think I shoot the ball with both hands still. So, <laughs> definitely not quite there. Um, yeah. yeah. He was unorthodox. But, you know, he, he moved so well without the ball. Uh, being 6'7 helped him a lot. If he were 6'4 or 5, you know, he may not have lasted. You know, he needed those extra two or three inches to get a shot off. But he moved so well without the ball. And he just played the game, quote, unquote, the right way, you know. But you had to run him off picks. But I thought that was great for the team because he wasn't the guy you could just give the ball to and clear out and ask him to create something. 
everybody had to be involved to get him open, and he would certainly give the ball up if somebody else had a better shot, and that made the offense running well. You know, we see now the offense might get bogged down if Oladipo is trying to go one-on-one and create something for himself. you got four guys standing around watching him. That's not good offense. So I always thought you got to get the ball to Reggie as often as possible in the offense because that will require everyone to be involved and everyone will stay involved because he'll give the ball up if somebody's open underneath the basket or he's double teamed or whatever. So, um, you know, he, even though he was a scorer first and foremost, uh, he made the offense work and he was a team player at the same time. Uh, and that's what made those teams click. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, so we've covered two of the big areas of Pacers basketball already. And uh, I have kind of one and a half on the next one. So, I want to talk about the 13-14 Pacers for sure. Or I guess I should say 12-14 or 12 to part of 14. Um, But um, And then also I'd love to talk about that kind of uh, period between when Jermaine was traded and when, you know, when Danny Granger came about and then uh, obviously no no playoffs until 2011. Um, What was that period like? Because you go from – I, gosh, I think not making the playoffs every year, except for the one year that uh, Mark Jackson was traded and came back. Uh, that was the only year that the Pacers didn't make the playoffs until 2007, I believe. It's 2007 or 2006. Yeah. So then yeah. you go into that, that giant dead period. And what was that like? Because that's the first real like losing period. Yeah. Yeah. And every franchise goes through that. You know, people forget, but, you know, the Lakers have gone through it, the Knicks, you know, the so-called major markets have all had stretches like that. And really, it's kind of to the Pacers' credit to look at all the things that had to happen for them to go through that. Uh, you know, it took the off-court incidents that kind of required trades, um, you know, required Jermaine O'Neal kind of breaking down. You have to trade Steven Jackson. You have to throw in Al Harrington to do that deal. Uh, Jamal Tinsley kind of runs his course, um, and you kind of just, you just drop him. Uh, you know, Jeff Foster's getting older, that kind of thing. So many different things had to happen uh, for the Pacers to have to go through their dry spell because uh, they had avoided that because the front office had been so good about drafting and trading and so forth, you know, and, and you know, maintaining a high level of play, play through the 90s and into the 2000s. So it kind of took people by surprise, but uh, – it happens. It happens for every franchise. It was difficult, certainly. Uh, fans were really down on the team because not only were they losing, but they had had these off-court incidents uh, that were bad PR. So you heard a lot of bunch of thugs talk. I got so tired of hearing, oh, they're a bunch of thugs, you know. And that's a whole other story. But um, the thing that Larry Bird deserves credit for is that he was patient because there were a lot of front offices make a mistake is they get impatient and they do a deal – that might look good right now, but it's bad long-term. You know, you might give up future draft picks um, for an aging star, for example, that might help you right now, but doesn't help you. Or you trade a future first-round draft pick, um, or you trade a, you know, you, uh, you trade a good player, you know, for a future pick. It could go either way. You know, you could, you're doing something to make you better right now, but you're not keeping the long range picture in mind. And that's what Larry Bird avoided. He um, went through those losing seasons of not making the playoffs, took a lot of heat for that, but they accumulated some better draft picks. You know, the draft pick that brought Paul George, um, they created 
some salary cap room where they could sign David West. They traded Jermaine O'Neal, which brought in Roy Hibbert, uh, those kind of things. They made the trade. I know people are all obviously still angry about trading that first-round pick that could have been used for Kawhi Leonard and getting George Hill. But George Hill East was a key part of those th- teams you're talking about. So, and, you know, drafting Lance Stevenson in the second round was a good uh, move for a while. It <laughs> worked out great for a couple <laughs> of years. So, um, you know, Larry Bird, I think – you know, talking about credit, he probably hasn't gotten enough credit from a lot of fans for building those teams. You know, when, when it came apart again, you know, after Paul George left and Roy Hibbert, you know, kind of went down the tanked on the team, in my opinion, people were really mad at Bird about it. But he's the one who built those teams um, and did it in a very methodical way uh, that a lot of GMs couldn't pull off. You know, he got the general manager of the year, team president of the year, for a reason, and I thought he deserved it. And uh, some of the things that happened to create another down period were really outside of his control, in my opinion. So um, those were down years, no no question about it. Uh, But if you're going to be a fan of any pro team, uh, Pacers or NFL or whatever, you're going to have to learn to live with those periods. It happens to everybody. Usually if your team becomes a championship team or a contender for a while, you know, those players will get older and move on or retire, whatever. And you're not having high draft picks. So therefore you're not bringing in great young talent and you're going to struggle for a while. That's just the way the system is set up. And the Pacers went through that system and it it took a lot of different things to force that, uh, but they came out of it. And now it seems like they're kind of constantly building, rebuilding uh, these last, you know, practically the last decade. But I don't think too much blame could go to the front office for that. I think there have been a lot of extenuating circumstances. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, before we get into the 13, 14 Pacers, um, obviously, you know, Danny Granger, I, it took me a while to realize why he dropped so low to the Pacers. I was talking to, to Tom, my editor, uh, one of the first podcasts we did together. And uh, he was telling me about how he had, you know, some, there were injury concerns already going into the draft uh, in terms of Danny Granger. But it's, it's funny because Danny Granger, uh, I mean, he's the player who made me fall in love with basketball. I remember uh, – I, I don't even remember what what time it was. I was probably only like 15 or 16, but I just turned on a Pacers game. It was only thing on. It was middle of the spring, and I didn't have any homework to do, and I just watched Danny Granger play. And watching that dude play was awesome. And the Pacers, I'm pretty sure, lost that game. Um, but I, I don't know. I just fell in love with his jump shot, the way that he played out on the floor, and just kind of had like a swagger to him. And – Obviously, you know, I'm, the, the way that his, his career went was really unfortunate. Um, but he was kind of the first bright spot out of those years. Yeah, no question. Uh, you know, 17th pick in the draft. And, you know, Tom's right. The Pacers were lucky to get him. Uh, and the reason he dropped to them was because of concerns about his knee. Uh, and he hung in there for quite a while. You know, he was a really good player for a while. He averaged over 20 points a game for what, three consecutive years, peaked out at 24 points a game one year when he was an all-star. Uh, he just had the misfortune of being a good player on bad teams. Now, I, I wasn't a huge proponent of his because I didn't think he did the non-scoring things mm-hmm. uh, like he could have. I didn't consider him a particularly good defender. He didn't go after rebounds. He seemed to be the master of the guy who would get – 25 points and two rebounds, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. um, there was one year, you know, 
when the Pacers made that trade with Golden State and brought in Mike Dunleavy and Troy Murphy and traded Stephen Jackson and Al Harrington and others out to Golden State, you know, the one year that Dunleavy was healthy as a Pacer, he and Granger both averaged 19 points a game. But you look at plus minuses, and Dunleavy was like best on the team, and Granger was really down. Granger's plus minus um, was not that good, which tells me he wasn't doing the other things. I just didn't consider him a complete player, but he was a very good player. And if he had been surrounded, you know, by more talent, uh, certainly could have, um, you know, enjoyed a lot more uh, success uh, with the Pacers. Um, I don't know that he was a leader. I know Paul George certainly looked up to him and liked him from what I saw. Uh, I didn't really consider him a leader on those teams, but a good guy, you know, and certainly not a guy to look down upon or be mad at or anything like that. I would just say not a complete player, not a leader, um, a scorer, a good athlete, a guy the Pacers were fortunate to get when they did. Um, very unfortunate for him that his knees kind of gave out just as, excuse me, the team was coming on. But I don't think, you know, I know a lot of people think it was horrible that they traded him away. I didn't think so because I don't think he was capable of helping them anymore. I thought that trade for Evan Turner was a really good one because Turner at least had a chance to help. Um, and whereas Danny Granger, we, you know, he really had very few good games after he was traded away by the Pacers. You know, he was in Miami. He was in Phoenix. Um, he just didn't get a lot done. And it was unfortunate because of those knees. But I didn't think that it was a mistake to trade him when they did. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the older I've gotten and the better I started to understand front offices and uh, team chemistry and team building. Um, it, obviously, it's wow. to, to have to trade away somebody who's been – I mean, he was the longest tenured guy in the franchise – um, and had been, uh, you know, the best player for, you know, before that team really came about. So um, it, I remember in the moment when the trade happened, I was a little devastated um, as you, as you get when you're, when you're a young person following a team. Um, but now I, I totally agree. I think, especially looking back, Evan Turner was having an incredible season and looked like the guy that the Pacers could really use, you know, another wing who can score on his own while facilitating for others. And Danny wasn't able to do that anymore, uh, which uh, again, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it, it happens sports. And uh, it, it was a swing and a miss, unfortunately, but as we can get into, um, but yeah, no, I think you make that trade 10 out of 10 times. Um, it's obviously chemistry is a hanging balance thing, but I think the guys would have understood, Hey, this is somebody who's going to come here and help us. Um, if, if maybe it had worked out differently, they probably viewed that a little bit differently as well. I bet. Yeah, I thought Frank Vogel could have used Devin Turner a little better. You look back, you look closely at his time as a Pacer, and the games where he played 25 minutes or more, kind of, you know, real minutes, his numbers were really good. Uh, but he just wasn't a guy made out to be a spot player to come in for five minutes here and three minutes there. You know, he was the second pick in the draft. He was used to being the guy, and he was not accustomed to that role and didn't adapt to it well. And Frank Vogel was kind of a by-the-book X's and O's coach who wanted to study video all night and come up with a game plan. He had a hard time with guys who didn't fit a slot. He had a hard time with players who were multidimensional and needed some freedom, you know, and Evan Turner was that kind of guy. So I thought that played into it as well. Uh, I know a lot of people thought that, well, you know, the locker room wasn't the same when Danny Granger left, that the 
you know, the players were mad about that. I, I didn't see that. I mean, I think Paul George was disappointed that uh, Danny Granger was traded, but I think he got over it, <laughs> and his numbers indicate that, the way he played. Uh, the rest of the guys hadn't been around Danny Granger much. You know, the Roy Hibberts and David West and George Hills, they didn't really know Danny that well. And uh, not that they were happy to see him go necessarily, but they didn't miss him either. You know, they weren't upset by it. So I thought that was kind of a, a mistake for people to think that somehow that ruined the locker room when he got traded away. I remember the day, you know, that it happened. And I'm standing out on the practice court. In fact, I'm standing in the hallway outside the locker room recording a Saturday morning radio thing with Kristen Neri and Granger walked out, you know, and we, oh, Danny, hey, uh, hey, uh, good luck. You know, it was just kind of a weird situation. And I remember being on the practice court uh, when Danny walked through on his way out of the door for the last time, and and I didn't see guys really upset about it. You know, uh, they felt – I'm sure they felt for him, but it wasn't like it ruined the locker room that he got traded. Uh, but that's the kind of thing you see sometimes where it may look that way to the outside world. Um that a guy got a raw deal or that it ruined the team or whatever. But I never felt that way with Danny Granger. I just felt bad for him that he could not have had his peak years on better teams. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, just kind of transitioning more into that, that 13, 14 team. Um, obviously if he's healthy, that team is even, even that much better. And you can tell, I mean, they were missing another score. Um, the 13 team talks about, you know, they were one quarter away. Tom is very adamant that they were a lot more than one quarter away. He always reminds me of that because uh, I'm more on the one quarter away side. But uh, the way that that team uh, unfolded and just kind of fell apart was uh, was weird. And or, or not necessarily weird. I mean, everything happens. It's human. Um, but the, just the way that everything timed out and, and Paul George's injury, obviously, uh, Roy Hibbert, uh, which partially is because of the, the verticality uh, rules. I guess it's, it's more like the, it's like the Jordan rules. I used to think there was actually a verticality rule, but it turns out it's really just, you know, the officials actually started, you know, taking care of the verticality. Um, and that hurt Roy's game a lot. And you can tell just watching and his confidence was shot too. And uh, not to keep going, but another, you know, interesting part on that. I, when I was talking to David as well, he talked about how Frank would just spend hours with Roy. Like he said, he would come in on like Saturdays or something. And it would just, he just see Frank and Roy, there talking together Frank was huge in like building up his confidence and just um, being with him one-on-one and trying to help him see the game and understand the game the way that he saw it. And so I think, you know, that that's really interesting to me. And uh, I just want to know about what are your thoughts on, I guess called the Paul George era and how everything kind of started and then kind of ended uh, less abruptly than we would have liked. Yeah. Yeah. Those two teams are interesting. The 12, 13 team, was where it came together again, and they get to the conference finals, game seven in Miami. And, God, that was such a promising team. And I remember I've never seen a happier locker room after a team got eliminated from the playoffs than that one because they lost game seven in Miami. But, you know, you you had George Hill, Lance Stevenson, David West, you know, Roy Hibbert. Um, I mean, you had a nucleus there. And at that time, it looked like Danny Granger was going to be coming back, you know, and I should have had Paul George in that group, of course, but, you know, you got this five starting five man starting lineup that showed so much promise and it was young, was only going to get better. And then the thought then was that in the next year, Danny Granger is going to be joining this group, you know, that he's going to be healthy by next season, the 13, 14 season, who knows what could happen. 
And I remember Lance Stevenson saying in the locker room after they lost game seven in Miami that, uh, hey, I'll go to the bench for Danny Granger. I'll, I'll come play off the bench. It just seemed like, oh, this team is loaded, and they're only going to get better. You know, to me, that group was just too young and ill-equipped for that moment. Playing a game seven on somebody else's home court, that particular team was not up to that challenge. you got to go through a process. Just like in the early 90s, mid-90s, the Pacers went through a process of losing playoff games, you know, game sevens and so forth, before you could win them. And that team was not ready to win game seven in Miami against a team with LeBron James. I remember Paul George struggled in that game seven. So then they come back the next year, though, 13-14. Oh, you know, they're even better. Turns out Danny Granger can't play. His knees still aren't ready. I mean, he played, but he couldn't play well. He couldn't regain his old form. But remember, they started that 13-14 season, the 9-0 record. And I remember, you know, Lance Stevenson was throwing out, we want to win our first 10 games. Well, they got to nine games. Uh, and they were they were rolling. I think they were 16-1, if I remember right. I mean, they were rolling out of the gate, and that team came apart. And it's just, to me, the lesson there is how difficult it is to build and maintain a contending team. There's so many things that could go wrong. And that 13-14 team, when it came apart, I point, first of all, at Roy Hibbert. You know, I think Roy – had it in his head. I think he had people telling him that, hey, look, you're an all-star. You need to be getting more shots. You used to be scoring more. Um, he, he told me once after a game, after a home game that they won, that he said, I'm thinking about talking to Frank about playing off the bench because I'll get more shots that way. I think he got hung up on that. You know, he made two all-star teams. I think he felt like he should be a bigger part of the offense. And they were asking, asking him basically to be a rebounder and shot blocker, you know, protect the rim. They had other scores. And he struggled with that. And then you had uh, other issues come up, you know, that were kind of outside of people's control. But I really think it started with Roy Hibbert in that case that season. You know, we might remember a game, home game against Atlanta, where um, he basically sat on the bench and pouted. And, and a lot of times he wouldn't talk after games. He just seemed to be – uh, he seemed to separate himself from the team. And I remember those guys were always trying to bring him in and talk him up and, hey, big dog, you take care, we'll see you, and to compliment him. And, they, you know, just going above and beyond to trying to say nice things about him and make him feel part of the group and boost his confidence. Uh, and he didn't return that. You know, I, I just felt like he let those guys down in a lot of ways. Um, the game was changing. Uh, the three-pointer was more and more of a factor. You had Paul George, an all-star. You had Lance Stevenson, who was a scorer. You had David West, who was a great mid-range shooter. Uh, you know, George Hill was a capable three-point shooter. There just weren't going to be that many shots for Hibbert, and he struggled with that. And I thought that was kind of the beginning of the end for that team. Although they did, we should remember, get to the conference finals and played Miami again and got to game six in the conference finals that year. They kind of got it together, but it was never together like it had been the year before. And uh, it just didn't happen. And uh, that was unfortunate. Yeah, definitely. And then obviously uh, PG gets injured in, in the Olympic trials and um, David, well, yeah, the team tries to, you know, scrape together in the next year. And uh, I believe misses the playoffs by a game. If I remember correctly, I think it's just one game. Yeah. And yeah, I remember they went down to uh, Memphis uh, for the last game of the year, and they would have made the playoffs if they won that game. 
there was a back-to-back. They had played like a double overtime against Washington at the Fieldhouse the night before, and it was fan appreciation night, so they're throwing stuff in the stands. And they don't get to Memphis until like 3 a.m. And that's and this is a point, you know, I'm maybe getting off topic here, but, you know, we talk about the coaches need to have played to be successful. I don't think they do. Obviously, Greg Popovich and Spolster and guys prove that you don't have to, but that was a point where I thought Frank Vogel's lack of experience as a player hurt him. The Pacers needed to win that game to make the playoffs. They're getting in at 3 in the morning. This was an occasion where you just say, hey, get the sleep, get all the sleep you can get. We'll talk in the afternoon and just go out and play tomorrow. But Vogel wanted to keep the routine. All right, we need to be up for breakfast at 10. We're going to have a film at 11, this kind of thing. The players talking to them later um, thought that was a mistake. Um you know, they weren't going to go far in the playoffs anyway because, remember, Paul George in that game at Memphis um, kind of re-injured himself, pulled a muscle or something. He wasn't going mm-hmm. to play in the playoffs if they made the playoffs. Uh, that team was done anyway. But still, that was just one example of where, you know, a coach kind of needs to understand the needs of the players a little better to know how to prepare for a certain situation. Yeah, definitely. And then, obviously, you know, that starts – to just kind of spiral out after, you know, the, um, the free agents that are brought in in uh, 16 uh, do not exactly pan out as, um, as hoped. I remember when, uh, when Monte Ellis was signed, I was ecstatic, but I, I guess I'd never watched Monte Ellis play before. And I forgot the fact that he was, you know, like 30 or 31 by that point. So obviously I, you know, it's the kind of thing where now I, I get it, but you know, when you're 16, you're like, Oh wow, this is awesome. Um, yeah. And well, I think Monte is interesting to talk about because, uh, I was intrigued when they signed him. He had been the, the leading scorer for the Mavericks, mm-hmm. you know, the year before. Average 20 points a game. Uh, it was their leading scorer. This is the guy who could score, you know, a great, and he would create for others too. I guess I questioned it because no other team had ever tried to keep him. You know, Golden State traded him once Steph Curry emerged. He was with Milwaukee. They didn't try to keep him. They went to Dallas. And even though he was their leading scorer, they didn't try to re-sign him. To me, that was the red flag. I would have asked Larry Bird, why does no team want to keep this guy? He, we know he can score, but is he a winner? And I had no idea what he was like, uh, you know, off the court or in the locker room. Now, Monte was a leader. You know, he, I was told that he took over that locker room like two days after getting here. He was the one guy, you remember, who would take Paul George aside on the court and instruct him or tell guys. There were times in a huddle – while the coaches were out doing their thing on the court, Monte would sit in the coach's seat and talk to the players. He was willing to step into a leadership role, um, but once he lost his position or status, uh, he wasn't the right kind of leader. You know, he then mm-hmm. became a neg- negative. But he had positive qualities, but he just wasn't healthy enough to be the Monte Ellis of old. And I, that was, you know, I give Larry Bird more credit than a lot of people. I think he did a better job than a lot of fans seem to want to say, but that was a mistake. You know, Monte Ellis was a mistake. Um, number one, he wasn't healthy. He, he was breaking down physically, couldn't do what he'd done before, and he just wasn't a winning player. He needed the ball too much. Uh, he was a strong personality, and he was going to rebel if things weren't going his way. So for those reasons, I think that was a mistake. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, the, you know, it's it's interesting because especially like you were talking about earlier on, on the, the, the 90s teams and the teams after on how they were patient. And this is, you know, kind of one of the first moves where Larry Bird's a little bit impatient. 
And he, you know, you sign somebody that's a little bit outside the contending window, you know, like Paul George, I believe he's 24, 25 at that point. And Monte's, you know, is coming out of his prime already. So making the, the kind of, you know, financial commitment and uh, long-term commitment to a guy like that ended up being pretty costly. Um, and obviously, you know, that spirals out even more the next year and we, we have Paul George leaving and I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on, on what that was like covering, um, as that season wound down and it became apparent that Paul was going to leave after yeah. he made it apparent. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised because he had said all the right things about wanting to stay. Um, uh, he was even at that softball game here in town, celebrity thing fundraiser where he talked optimistically about the next season. Then the next day, his agent put out a trade request. Um, I thought he handled it poorly. Um, he obviously had talked with Kevin Pritchard. Uh, he apparently did not give Kevin Pritchard the impression he wanted out. That's why Kevin Pritchard used that phrase gut punch. It was a gut punch when his agent called me and said he wanted to trade. Um, obviously, it worked out well for the Pacers. As long as Oladipo could be kept in the fold here, uh, it worked out well for the Pacers. Um, but I, I thought Paul handled that poorly. Uh, now, what he deserves credit for is that he did have his agent put out the request over the summer and allowed the Pacers to make a trade. You know, he could have played one more year for the Pacers, become a free agent and gotten out of here, uh, in which case the Pacers would have gotten nothing in return for him. So he deserves it for handling it that way. I just don't know. I mean, I wasn't privy to the conversations he had with Kevin Pritchard, but uh, my impression from where I sit is that he wasn't straight up with him. Paul is a nice guy who wants to be liked he kind of plays into what people want to hear. You know, he was kind of a difficult interview in the locker room or after practice in that he, he always had the feeling he was telling you what he thought you wanted to hear. Which, and I don't care what you tell me, just tell me the truth. You know, I'm not hoping you say anything in particular, but he was always had that impression. And if you asked a question of him like, Paul, do you think such and such, he would almost always go along and say, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I got to the point where I made it a point of, raising questions like, Paul, do you think such and such, or do you think this? You know, give him an option to mm -hmm. try to get a straight answer out of him because he otherwise would kind of play into the question and, and say what he thought you wanted to hear. So that's his personality. And I think that came into play with his trade request. He didn't have it in him to go tell Kevin Pritchard, hey, I went out of here. Get me out of here. I'm giving up on you guys. Uh, or I, I want to go back to L.A. Um, he had his agent do it after he had had those conversations with Kevin Pritchard, after he had told the media that he was looking forward to the next season, that kind of thing. I've been told by somebody who was a you know employee of the Pacers, part of their traveling party, that very early in Paul's time with the Pacers, he had said, yeah, I, I want to get back to L.A. someday. And, you know, he was on those really good teams. So obviously then in 13 to 14, he's not looking to get out. But I think he always had it in his head that he wanted to go back in L.A. because he's from that area. And he grew up a Clipper fan. Uh, so I think that was maybe it was going to happen all along. Unless the Pacers were like a title contender virtually every year, he was probably going to find a way to get out of here eventually. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's really interesting to look at as well because, you know, if he just handles it a little bit differently, if he is honest with, with KP and, you know, just says – you know, this team is not going to be a title contender this year or the next year. It's going to take a while before we get there. And I'm not interested in, in waiting around for that. That's totally different. And I think people would be 
uh, upset in the moment. I do think that uh, people have been a little bit, uh, a little bit too up in arms about it at times. I, I personally can't stand that he still gets booed when he comes back to banker's life. Um, yeah. I, I wrote an article about it, got a lot of heat on it. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I'm just not a big, big fan of booing people, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, those are some really great points about Paul. Um, Player, and, players have a right to want to make a change. You know, we all, whatever our job is, are willing to leave a job for a better situation, either to go move somewhere we want to live or for more money or just to be with a different company. We all do that. You know, I've left newspaper jobs. Nobody got mad at me. So uh, people do need to keep that in mind. And I'm sure you made the point in your article that it was okay for Paul to want out. He should have told Kevin Pritchard before the draft they want out to give Kevin as many options as possible. He should have said, look, I appreciate the time I've had here. I really want to play in LA and be near my family. Um, you know, I grew up a Clippers fan. Uh, so I'm asking you to trade me now when you have the best opportunity to get something in return for me. Patients obviously came out of it anyway. They are very lucky to do so. Uh, but Paul could have done it sooner and handled it in a more professional way. Oh, 100%. Um, definitely never going to disagree with you on that. Um, and, you know, speaking about apparently wanting out, I don't believe it currently. There's no, you know, anything firm on that. Uh, but the Pacers are obviously at a, a little bit of an awkward time now, as most of the teams in the league are with, with coronavirus. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts on, on this team and where it's headed right now, because I, I definitely have my own thoughts as well. Um, I think personally, just when I, when I look at stuff, unless somebody legitimately says I want out, I'm not going to believe it until it happens. Um, it hasn't come directly from Victor's mouth. So I'm not interested in talking about it. Frankly, I think it's a disservice to the other 14 guys on the roster, uh, 17 guys, I should say two way players as well. Um, it's a disservice to them to keep talking about Victor's free agency instead of talking about the team as a whole. Um, but I do think there are a lot of questions about where this team is headed uh, I think there have been a lot of positive signs. You know, this is very different. I, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day because they, uh, somebody brought it up to me that this was like the, um, like the 17 Pacers. And I was like, you know, I, I really don't think so at all because this team has a ton of talent. You know, they're working on fit. That's the important part, obviously, you know, figuring out how uh, the front court works together and how the team, you know, the shots, shot uh, hierarchy and everything works with, with so many guys who can score. Um, but this team has the talent to, to do a lot. I, I personally don't think it's quite a, a title contender quite yet. I still think there's maybe like one guy missing. Um, but obviously, you know, not having Victor play uh, throws a big wrench in finding out what this team is capable of doing in a playoff setting. Oh, no question. No question. I was surprised. You know, I thought um, we talked to him via Zoom uh, right when they began their workouts and my assumption then, and I asked Nate McMillan about it, and he said the same thing, that Victor would go down to Orlando and participate in these full-scale five workouts and make a decision then. You know, I'm never critical of a player uh, regarding injury because I'm not in their body and I don't know, you know. I'm never, never going to criticize a player who, who claims he's injured. Um, so I wasn't going to criticize Oladipo if he had doubts about whether he could play or not, although certainly it seems strange because he was playing well in March and he had three more months to rehab. So you would have thought he would be in good shape now. But regardless of that, uh, my problem would be mainly with the way it was handled. Again, to announce it through 
what was an ESPN guy, his agent, I guess, or set it up that way. Or I don't know if that was Victor's decision or his agent's decision to go through a national media person to a national. He should have come from the Pacers. You know, the, he should have told the front office people first, discussed it with them, and let the team release it. Or the second option, uh, which would have been fine with me, would have been tell the local media in a Zoom call about it. They announced it the way he did and kind of cast the front office off guard was not the right way to handle it. Um, hopefully he learns something from this process. But uh, it's in, Victor's in an interesting position here. You know, he's made a big deal about this is my city. Um, and now it looks a little strange that he's not, you know, going to play with these guys, you know, in Orlando. and not going to try to play with these guys. Uh, so I understand the skepticism fans have, but like you, I don't assume that means he wants out of here. Uh, to me, it means that he wants to protect himself as much as he can to be in the best possible shape for next season when he's in the last year of his contract and wants to give himself the best opportunity to get a max deal after next season. That's what I take from it, uh, but that's just my guess, my assumption, without having talked to him directly about it. So um, we'll see. But, you know, yeah, people think it's Paul George all over again. I don't think that necessarily. You know, I think people make too much of, oh, no star player wants to be here, that kind of thing. Um, you know, usually the Pacers are loaded up with their cap space and everything. They usually have contending teams or they're on or they're building toward one. They've never, they've rarely had so much money under the cap they could even make an offer to a star player. So I think people uh, get carried away with this whole thing of no star player wants to come to Indianapolis. Yeah, I agree. You know, Shaq and Kobe didn't want to come here. Certain guys are going to want to be in LA or Miami, that type of thing. But you can still get really good players here as free agents and there's still ways to build contending teams. The Pacers have done it before. So, you know, I'm open-minded about Victor Oladipo's future with the Pacers. I'm not assuming he wants out by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, He needs to have a really good year next season in the 2021 season, obviously. But I think the Pacers are in an interesting point because they've, you know, you've got uh, Brogdon making what 22 to 24 million You've got Turner making about $20 million. You've got Sabonis making just under $20 million. Oladipo is at $24 million now and is going to want more. And T.J. Warren, your leading scorer, uh, uh, you know, he's kind of on a bargain contract at about $11, 12000000 million. And that contract's up in a couple of years. You can't pay everybody what the market is going to say they're worth. Something will have to give for this team down the road, not necessarily next season, but in a couple of years, something will have to give because no team has five starters making, you know, 20 to $25 million. You can't do that because you're not going to have enough money to put a decent bench together. So um, the Pacers are in an interesting point here, uh, but we're just going to have to see how it plays out. We're going to have to see what kind of season Oladipo can have next season and how T.J. Warren can continue to progress, that type of thing, before we could really make any good guesses of what's going to become of this group. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think uh, just to harken back a little bit, um, like you were talking about how, how his decision came out, I was on the call, I believe you were on the call as well, when, uh, when Nate uh, openly said, you know, I found out the exact same way that you guys did. And I remember I was kind of taken aback when I heard that. Um, yeah. You know, I – when I first saw that, uh, that Sean Sturania had, had been the one to release it, I figured, okay, maybe the, uh, the front office is slightly in the know about it. Um, and to hear that from Nate made it obviously pretty clear that that wasn't the case. 
Um, so that was certainly, certainly uh, pretty, pretty weird to hear. Um, but yeah, you know, just speaking on, on where the team's at now, uh, I think that there's definitely some, some chances for, I, I did a podcast earlier today actually talking about uh, potential playoff series with Miami. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a chance for the team to advance, you know, maybe around in the playoffs, but I, I think to, to, to assume any farther than that would be pretty, pretty tough, especially with Jeremy Lamb out as well um, for the rest of the season. And we don't know how, how Malcolm's going to be coming back. Cause he's still, he, I mean, he was diagnosed with coronavirus and he's, he's not practicing yet. That was released today. Um, and obviously I just want his long-term health. That's all I care about. I, I, you know, it's, it's so weird talking about basketball sometimes when, when all this is going on outside because it's so marginal compared to, uh, to people, you know, dying or being impaired by this virus or, um, the, the inequalities and injustice going on outside. Um, but yeah, I, I think just, it, it goes without saying that next year is going to be, um, there's, there's going to be a lot riding on it because instead of, you know, this year, it's not like it was a free pass. Um, but this is the trial run. You know, this is where you find out how do Miles and Domas look together in a playoff setting? How does, uh, can Victor be back in a playoff setting and playing like he was um, against Cleveland in 2018? And, and actually, can he be better? Because it's actually really interesting to go back and look at that. It's kind of an aside. But you know, in that 2018 first round, I mean, Victor was good, but he wasn't, he, he wasn't quite the same player he was during the regular season. He struggled a little yeah. bit with the shot. Um, obviously the defense was still incredible and he was just a energetic force, but, um, if he is the same player that he was during that regular season and we maybe get some slightly different calls, uh, in some of the games, uh, that's, that's probably a Pacers win, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think Victor has yet to prove himself as a player deserving of the max contract. You know, he last season was not as good as two seasons ago. This season, he was getting better. You can't really judge him on that. Uh, he needs to become, in my opinion, a better shooter. You know, as many three-point shots as he's going to take, he needs to be a more accurate shooter. Uh, he's got a flaw in his shooting form. He takes the ball left to right as he releases it. So it's almost like he's shooting at a moving target. Uh, he apparently has heard me say that before because he said something to me about it once last summer when he was at a camp. Uh, and I think he's kind of improved it a little bit, but – you know, he's got a great knack for hitting big shots for a guy who's not a great shooter. I give him credit for that. You know, even this year in his first game back, has a horrible shooting game, but he hits the 30-footer to force overtime against Chicago. You know, you got to that's – that's a skill. That's a great asset to be a clutch shooter because not a lot of guys are. Um, and he is a great defender. First team all defense two seasons ago, his first year with the Pacers. Um, you know, even in the 13 games he played this season – he leads the team and charges taken. I mean, that's good stuff. You know, that's, that's to his credit. But I think he needs to learn to control his ego, uh, which includes having better shot selection. Uh, he's capable of driving and dishing and getting shots for guys, but I think he gets a little too hung up on scoring. My big stat with Victor Oladipo, and I've written it and talked about it many times, when he takes 15 or fewer shots – Pacers have been practically unbeatable. Their record is incredible in the games where he takes 15 shots or fewer, uh, which means the offense is balanced. When he takes more than 20 shots, they have a really poor record. I can't—I don't have the numbers in my head offhand, but anybody who would go to the trouble of looking that up, and I've certainly written it, um, they are tremendous when he takes 15 shots or fewer. They were a poor team when he takes more than 20. 
Um, and I think he struggles with that. I think he wants to be a guy who gets 30 points. I think he wants to put up 20 to 25 shots. Uh, but that's not, for this team, uh, the best way to play. There are scores around him. You know, you want Sabonis taking a lot of shots. Turner has to be a legitimate three-point threat. Brogdon can score. You know, you can go right down the list. Guys off the bench can score. And a team is always going to be at its best when it's well-balanced. You know, Reggie Miller was not a guy who took 20, 25 shots a game very often. He'd get 25 points by getting to the free-throw line a dozen times. You know, that's how he did it. And I think Oladipo could take a lot from that. So, just a really intriguing player, good guy, great energy, um, brings a lot of uh, optimism to the team. But I do think he needs to have better control of his ego and keep the team aspect in mind a little bit better. And that can come through growth. You know, I, in my mind, he's still a pretty young player. Uh, he, he hadn't hit 30 yet anyway. And he's kind of learning. He's just become a star player the last couple of years. And like I said before, there's a process to learning to become a star player and dealing with all the things that come with that and controlling your ego. I think Reggie Miller went through some of that back in the mid-90s after he had his moments in Madison Square Garden. So that's where Vic is right now. You know, he's got great potential to be an even better player, to be a truly great player. He could be a Hall of Famer uh, if he handles things the right way. Uh, but there's more maturity that needs to come with that. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And um, I think one thing that I'm really excited for with the playoffs is the potential for – I mean, for, first of all, this is TJ Warren's first time in the playoffs. And from what I've heard, he's very excited about it. Um, and – I'm, I'm really excited to, to watch him and what he can do because especially, you know, the, the piece I wrote recently was just strictly on his defense. And uh, I went back and analyzed his defense this year and compared it to last year. And um, I mean, he, he became a legitimate stopper on that end. You know, it was to the consistency has to grow a little bit, um, but he really took a step forward, multiple steps forward as a defender. And I think that there's another level for him to get to as a, as a scorer. Uh, because it's interesting when you when you think about TJ and, and his scoring ability, you think of him more as like a one-on-one threat. Uh, but really, he's more of a play finisher than an initiator. You know, he, he does a lot of off cuts. Uh, he, does, he does a lot off, uh, you know, coming off screens or into spot ups. And I think that he's got some some ability. Maybe if he improves his hand a little bit, to become even more of a of a one-on-one threat and finding ways to get to the line more. Um, but I think that's kind of one of the avenues where this team continues to get better because he's still young. I mean, he, he's not even 27 yet. I think he'll be 27 sometime next season. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the, the best part to put to, – to, the best way to put this team is just a lot of potential. Um, yeah. And I'm just excited to see how, how it turns out. Um, and we got a lot coming up with the bubble for sure. The games start up uh, less, less than three weeks now, which is pretty crazy to say after uh, over 100 days without basketball. So I'll take it, man. Um, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. What are you working on right now? Well, just kind of following these Zoom things right now um, as best I can. You can't get a lot out of those, you know, on a conference call like we're having now. But trying to keep up to date on that. And beyond that, what I'm really working on is uh, my next book. You know, I did a book about the formation of the Pacer franchise in the 60s and their first two seasons in the NBA and how they kind of got off the ground. And I want to do one on the championship years in the ABA. They won three ABA championships, of course. And I want to cover that period of time and really focus on some of the personalities of those teams. You know, I was a kid growing up in Indianapolis during that time and remember those teams and remember uh, what that meant to the city. 
And so I've been spending a lot of time with guys like George McGinnis and Billy Keller, talking to Rick Mount here and there, trying to just gather the behind the scenes stuff of their championship seasons. And I'd like to put together another book on that. Uh, I got a ways to go on that, but that's kind of my uh, backup project right now. Awesome. That sounds great. I'm, uh, I'll definitely be excited to read that whenever that comes out. Um, to everyone listening at home, uh, thank you for listening. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe anywhere else you can get your podcasts. Uh, check out our corner, our, our articles on IndieCornrows.com and uh, just stay safe out there. Have a good rest of your day.